0: folks my next guest is marlene leslie an industry veteran and i would say potentially an icon to the people she's worked with she might think that's too big a statement marlene started in the industry at age 24 running one of the biggest most extraordinary sized restaurants in Times square and developed into an incredible entrepreneur somebody that is a coach Uh, a mentor, and also a business development manager that understands hospitality through and through. I'm pretty excited about Marlene Leslie being involved in this show because it's taken me forever to get her on here. I can't wait for you to listen to the show. This is gonna be fun. Well, good morning, Marlene. We've got Marlene Leslie here. How you doing?
1: Good, good, good morning.
0: Finally got you on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Only took a year and a half. I was like, I mean, I got more chance of getting Oprah on the show than you. So you have got caffeined up, so you're ready for, the, uh, ready for the little broadcast. I'd like to everybody to understand a little bit about you. I mean, I know you really well, but how did you start in this industry?
1: I started as a hostess in a very small restaurant in East Texas.
0: What were you doing in East Texas?
1: My parents moved there when I was younger from New how, York. How old were you? Uh, middle school, so 13, 14.
0: All right, and you've done a lot of stuff which we're going to cover off in this interview. And so you kind of worked through the hospitality industry to a mature level of over 20. (laughs) Did you always want to be in hospitality? I did. Did you know that?
1: I did. I did, yeah. It started at this restaurant. It started at this restaurant. Um, And I only recently realized that my love for hospitality started at an early age and my love for fixing things started then as well. Um, And it just grew from there. It's funny you
0: say fixing things because the thing is, is that hospitality people. I just had an amazing interview just before this and hospitality people are fixers, right? You know, during COVID, everybody that I've interviewed that have closed their restaurants or or been furloughed or out of work, nobody said to me once they want to get out of the industry. Nobody. So so when did you really start to make your mark with being in a management level? What year was that and where was it?
1: Um, I think it was probably when I was... Early on in my career, when I worked for Steve Hansen Mm -hmm. um, at Bluefin, Mm -hmm. it's a $20 million restaurant. I was 22 years old, 23 years old. Where was that? Um, In Times Square. Right. Yeah, in the city. Um, Back when Steve Hansen um, had a lot of restaurants, was a very prominent presence in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, Started there and very quickly progressed um, through management, became a general manager. Um, I was one of the youngest general managers in their company. How old were you? 23.
0: 23, and 23, you're running a $20 yeah. million dollar restaurant. Yeah. Wow. Did you know what you're doing? No. no. <laughs> at least you're honest. And I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know that. Okay. So, what was that like, and how long were you there?
1: Um, I was there for four years.
0: So, was it like a little bit of a baptism of my fire? Because I think we both had very similar yeah. careers where you just shoot, you know, they say how hey, you eat an elephant is one bite at a time, but in that right. kind of scenario, you're 23, you don't know anything. Well,
1: yeah, look, it was a great learning experience. And this is why I love um, high volume, mm-hmm. is because you learn at such a rapid pace. And when you're young and you're growing up in this industry, you have no choice but to learn. Yeah, well. And to figure it out very, very quickly. Otherwise, the next crisis, the next, you just get eaten up alive, hmm. um, unless you understand like, how to solve those problems and think on your feet.
0: When you were given that role, obviously you said yes, um, straight away. Yeah. What did you learn in that first year? I mean, you're a manager, but you're fresh. You went from restaurant manager to, you were restaurant manager the whole time? Yeah. Wow. So straight away at 23, it's your first management position. They obviously had a faith in you. What did you learn in that first 12 months?
1: Um, I learned the importance of people. And the importance of your team. Yeah, you know, I always come back to that through my career, through consulting, through everything that I've done. It always comes back to the fundamentals, and it always starts with people, and it starts with culture.
0: So, this is what year? I'm not trying to get your age out, but
1: um, oh my gosh, 2000. Well, I'm 41 ish. Are you? <laughs> I'm 32 <laughs> <Like it>. so <laughs> I like that, so what was it uh, uh 2002. Yeah, 2002
0: what was yeah. the industry like 2002 in New York
1: Oh my gosh it was so energetic Yeah There's just so much energy in New York and part of that could have been because you know obviously I wasn't jaded I was much younger yeah. um and everything was just You know, so amazing, and it still is. But back then, restaurants were just—they were just different. Don't you think
0: it's funny that you can say we didn't have emails, or we didn't have Facebook, or we didn't have Instagram? And in those days, it was really, really an article, a review, and and word of mouth, right? That's how you. Yeah,
1: it really. I mean, it it truly was, and it was just so fascinating how quickly that's all evolved. Because in the span of you know twenty years, I guess, I guess that is a long time now. But back then. It, you know It's just how you did things. Sure,
0: and and so you stayed there for four years. In that four years, obviously you grew as a manager and as mm-hmm. a person. And then what happened after that four year period? Why did you leave and where did you go?
1: I went to work for Steven Star. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that I left is because early on in my career I realized that I wanted to learn specific things mm-hmm. from different operators. Mm-hmm. And so Steve Hansen back then was the the person to learn the fundamentals of running a restaurant and you know truly like how to how to make everything so that it's consistent yep. and standardized um, the reason I went to work for Steven Starr is because he knew how to make restaurants sexy yeah and he was all about design he was all about quality he was all about bringing soul into a restaurant and it it was a nice um, back then I thought it was a nice balance um, to be able to work for Two of the greatest restaurateurs um, at the moment in New York, um, and so I left and I joined uh, at Morimoto.
0: Morimoto, okay. Yeah. And Chef Morimoto had become famous.
1: Yes. At that yeah. time,
0: stage, or was he just thus building up?
1: He was. He was at his. I'd say probably at the height of his career.
0: Right, and then at, what was the restaurant? Where was it?
1: It was um, in Chelsea, yep. uh, right below the High Line on 10th Avenue, um, and since unfortunately it's closed because of the pandemic. But um, back then it was an $11 million restaurant. Wow. Um, And it was after Chef Morimoto's name, Morimoto, yeah. Yeah.
0: And then how long were you there for? I
1: was there for only a couple of years. I was there for about three years. What was was... that
0: like? Like, What was the difference in style? Like you went from a 20 to an 11, there's still monster restaurants.
1: You know, this is probably the point in my career where I realized, um, again, like the lesson of the the people, Hmm. um, understanding the power of the people and inspiring a team and leading a team. Um, Coupled with fixing things, right? Sure. Um, I learned how to manage a PL at Morimoto and through Steven Starr, in addition to the aesthetic component and the importance of some of those finer details that contribute to an ambiance in a restaurant. Sure. Um, And so the difference there was that I joined in 2007. Right. So that was sort of, you know, as far as I can remember, the height of restaurants. And then 2008 came. Yeah. And all hell broke loose. Um, so understanding how to manage through You're
0: talking about the GFC, of course, <laughs> yeah, the financial crisis. right? yeah. yeah. Just for young um, millennials out there, go well. What, what, why was that uh, year funny? Right. Why
1: is why two thousand eight so important? <laughs> um, so that was that was the moment where you know you really had to learn the importance of preserving a brand and the integrity um, of a restaurant while also trying to maintain some sort of profit and staying open. Right. Um, little did we know this last year would prove to be even more challenging than 2008 was.
0: So you went through 9-11, mm-hmm. that would have been challenging, and how? what was the dip like in that after 9-11? Because I mean, watching it from afar, I was just talking about this to someone and I remember it was 11 o'clock at night and I went up to my Moroccan friend, chef, who was Arabic mm-hmm. and Muslim, mm-hmm. and he was shitting himself when he heard what was yeah. happening. And I didn't understand it; I was too young. And I was like, "Well, mm-hmm. oh, that young, but not enough to understand what the, what was coming." And he actually knew; he was like yeah. forty. And uh, what was this? What was the city like? What was the, the experience like?
1: It was. Um, it was dark. It was yeah. sad. It was. You felt like you were in mourning. Yeah. And um,
0: how, how do you have a business in that moment when restaurants and bars are about essentially celebrating and socializing? What yeah. was it like? Did it change the mood in the, in the venues?
1: It did. And, it, you know, honestly, I had just moved to New York. Right. Um, and so it was the only way that I can describe it as a very like dark and you could just, you could sense that you were in it together. And so when people talk about the resilience of New Yorkers, or you hear people that are maybe a little bit older that really will talk about how oh New Yorkers are so resilient. Mm -hmm. Um, They think back to these moments because you would walk down the street and you would sort of like, you could feel the empathy. You could feel that everyone was going through this together. The horror of what had happened, um, and then you look up in the sky and you still still, still see smoke coming from yeah. downtown, which you know I, I don't know that in my life I've ever experienced anything like that. But it was very emotional.
0: It's interesting because I was here like four months after, five months after I was in the city, and I remember. Um, I was in a park somewhere. I'm trying to remember. I've been thinking about this for a while. I don't know if it was Washington Park. And a military plane went over the city and the entire park stood still, almost like in, in... Frightened fear and yep. looking at another plane. And the plane was obviously a military plane and it was one of those propeller planes. So mm-hmm. it wasn't as like a DC or something. Um, and it flew over, and I remember everybody in the park stopping like one of those horror movies where everybody turns into just something freezes, zombies. Yeah. And they all froze. And yeah. I just realized, like, and I didn't really get it because clearly I, at that second, and then within about two minutes, I was like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. So, so did business drop off after 9 11? Like, it did. Right. And in the corporate world as you know mainly or just generally
1: um just generally Mm -hmm. you know i think that there was and look this was a very long time ago but from what i remember there was a lot of apprehension um with new york in general um which you know each of these crises are unique in their own way in terms Mm -hmm. of how they impact people mm-hmm. um, and how they impact businesses.
0: So then you go fast forward, I'm not trying to talk about all the crises, but we are <laughs> actually in the worst crisis for yeah. the world, let alone restaurants. Um, so now we've got the global financial crisis. I had, um, you know, a bunch of restaurants and my restaurants yeah. got busier, ironically, um, during the global crisis and 9-11, which was weird, particularly I think because everybody decided they weren't gonna fly out of Australia. and. When the GFC came, we didn't really see a drop in business. I think a lot of people thought it'd clean up, but New York was savaged, right? It was really, Mm -hmm. the GFC was watching people uh, walk out of their offices with their belongings and potentially lose everything they had. What was business like then?
1: Uh, It was awful. Yeah. It was was a very challenging time to run a restaurant, especially a restaurant where the check average was over a hundred dollars. And that's Morimoto. Yeah. Yeah, and it, you know it's interesting because I remember um, I joined the Standard in 2009, mm-hmm. and so there were clearly people that were thinking about the next chapter in hospitality and what was yep. coming next. Because, um, which I'm sure we'll get to, but that was a time where you know the Standard was just being created, sure. and. Um, being thought about being brought to life, right? right?
0: So that, when, when was this? we're talking about the standard hotel for people that don't know it and the yeah. meatpacking. Meatpacking, you know, historically was a seedy area and it was, yeah. um, um, they built the train line on the on the high line mm-hmm. as we call it. They built the trains there because in the early century, trains were running down the street and they were essentially above ground, not below yeah. ground for anybody who wants to look at their history and they were killing <laughs> a lot of people because basically kids would be running in front of it. So they went, hey, let's put it up on this higher, yeah. you know, and then it got, Uh, and then it was closed, they built the underground, and then it sat there, and and if I get this correct, um, somebody came up with the idea not to knock it down, because I think knocking it down was as expensive as building it, Mm -hmm. and somebody came up with the idea to populate it with plants and make it a walkway, and and, and ever since it's been a famous walkway if you haven't been in New York. So now the standard is opening or is open when you go there?
1: I was not part of the opening team. I joined right at, a few months after it opened, 2000, so 2009.
0: 2009, right. okay. So right after the GFC, mm-hmm. um, how long did that last, the GFC? How long till things felt sem- somewhat normal?
1: It, it must have been, at least from my recollection and just based on my career, for me, it felt like about a year. Okay. Um, I made a transition right when we were coming out of what, you know, we thought was, or maybe we didn't realize it in the moment, but, um, what was a crisis in hospitality right. um, and I left simply for purely for growth opportunities and to be a part of um, the standard right. story
0: the creator mm-hmm. Andre yes what's his last name for the listeners Belaz. Andres Belaz, one of the creators do you have anything before that um, yeah what did he have
1: um, The standard Hollywood Chateau Marmont mm-hmm. um, the standard LA Mercer Hotel, Sunset Beach. And and,
0: and he was like a spearhead of really cool, right? Hotels particularly that weren't in those days cool were filled with, you know, Marriott's and Four Seasons and Mm -hmm. beautiful. Sure, the Four Seasons was great in its level, but as far as a fun hotel that was quirky, interesting, had great design, had great food and beverage, I think they were, it's fair to say they were like the staging ground for, for a lot of copycats, right? For sure. So you joined the team, you met a lot of your friends there. We just had Adriana, our chief development officer (laughs) at Neuhaus in the room that you saw. You guys worked together there Mm -hmm. as well. So tell me about what it was like to go to the standard from, you've now gone from a corporate kind of $20 million a year, very slick run Times Square. You went to Steven Starr's Morimoto, Chef Morimoto's, famous on TV. You went through the GFC, global financial crisis, and now you're at the standard. And what were you doing there?
1: Um, I was the Director of Operations and then um, became the Food and Beverage Director.
0: And it was a big business, right?
1: Yeah, it started out as what you know we all thought was going to be a $20 million business, um, which was built that way. And very quickly, we realized the potential for it. Um, I'd say I don't know, 18 months or so after I joined, everything, all of the venues were finally opened and we realized it was on track to be a $50 million business. Wow.
0: So what did you have there? You had how many, I think, a couple hundred rooms or...
1: Um, 280 rooms, if I remember correctly. Right, and then there's yeah. got the, 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 the Boom
0: Boom Room, which is right. the famous bar, which is beautiful, beautiful. I think it's Roman Williams Design, the architectural firm, right? And that beautiful kind okay. of almost elliptic elliptic palm tree or tree in the middle of the room. Epic yes. views yeah. in, a, in a part of town where great hotels of New York, of, that, of a different standard, were not around that area, right? Like they were all midtown, exactly. kind of around the park and a bit snobby. Mm-hmm. And then the standards there. So, what other food and beverage was in the standard? Um,
1: um, well, if we're starting at the top, Le ben, which was a by level nightclub, yep, um, with the rooftop, and then um, the event space, um, of course, and then the beer garden, um, the living room, and the standard grill.
0: And the standard grill was kind of the food and beverage anchor point for the mm-hmm. for, for the for being regarded and well known, because I remember yes. that place open, and it was uh, we've eaten there a few times, and even. Yeah through its heyday, it's kind of never lost its luster. It still does incredibly well,
1: right? Yeah, Yeah, you know, I don't know how they're doing. I mean, now I think that everything has been turned upside down, but um, it was for a while considered to be an institution.
0: Now, I'm going to ask this because I usually don't talk about this much anymore and I still like to make sure it's fresh. I came back to New York three and a half, four years ago, and the Me Too movement oh. it started sweeping across mm. New York probably a year later. Um, and it was a shock to me that stuff like that was still going on, uh, particularly That's in right? Australia where I'm sure, it, you know, there was stuff like that in Australia, but it was a lot less prevalent Was it was. Harvey Weinstein and, you know, all that kind of movement. Between that time of the standard and now, what's changed in regards to the Me Too movement? Like, you know, you're in an era where sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? That's what yeah. the standard was known for. You know, you'd have Jay-Z or Count A West staying in suites for months and partying. Yeah. What was the life change that happened from that moment to now? What's really changed for the industry?
1: Uh, I think a greater level of awareness. Yep. Um, a greater level of awareness, uh, more education. Um, you know, just understanding because I think that women are more comfortable talking about this. Um, Whereas before, you know, growing up as a woman in this industry, it's not something that I would have ever brought up because I was like, oh, this is just how it is. This is the industry. And we're talking about a time where it was um, normal for chefs to throw plates in the kitchen. And, you know, that kind of behavior was generally acceptable. I think that, like, the awareness has forced men to, uh, A, be more conscious of their behavior and how they speak to people, mm. but also, you know, it's, it's just no longer acceptable because so many, the men that weren't guilty of being part of that movement, yep. um, some stepped up and said, wow, I'm so glad that as a leader, as a CEO, as a VP or whatever, I'm aware of this, so that they can help support the women that need the support, sure. um, and also bring attention to the matter um, with some of their counterparts that, you know, are, are sort of um, in denial about it. Do you right? think?
0: Do you think uh, because you were probably in, you pretty much have been in a leadership role your whole life, right? You've never really been on the line. In yeah. regards to sure you're on the line as a restaurant manager, you're running around, you're doing eighty, hundred hours a week. Did you have any personal um, times where you felt like the Me Too movement um, t- finally got addressed, and/or were you working in a group of people where you knew this stuff was happening? Oh yeah. And yeah. what was it like to be? I hate the idea because I've known you so well, and you yeah. know we respect each other for our crafts. But was it harder for you in a leadership role as a woman? In those days, running ops and telling chefs what to do, and it doesn't matter what sex you are, telling any chef what to do is already hard work in itself because you've got to be basically a fucking therapist. Right? This is you know, true. As I know from being a chef and having lots of therapy. But part of that era was like loose and groovy and some of the stuff that came out in the Me Too movement, and this is not that what this show's about, but in the Me Too movement, the stuff that came out shocked the crap out of me, particularly at the level of knowledge about what was going on. What was it like? There, how did you manage it? How did you make sure you protected your people?
1: Um, I you know, prior to me too and the behavior having a title, yeah, um, I was pretty oblivious to it, um, because in my head I chalked it up to well, this is just how it is, right? Right, so you like,
0: became you, 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 you know, in a way tolerant of it,
1: just by default, it yeah. wasn't really a choice, you yeah. know, when we talk about it now you kind of like i feel i feel guilty for not speaking up and not i'm um, using my voice and like my position as a leader to put an end to it but i'm not the only one who has felt that way sure. and when you grow up in an industry it's just like well this is just how you put up with it and you you sort of like match your behavior to match theirs which then comes with a whole host of other issues of where you're you know labeled as a bitch, or you're labeled as, you know, being um, too demanding, or all of those things when sure. you're just trying to to keep up um, in your own way. Whether, well, you know, it's obviously not um, through inappropriate behavior. but no, no. it's really it's just weird a for harder. me.
0: Yeah, because I spent a lot of time working in in Japan and Asia and, yeah. and Australia more, not the US. And what you know, when the Me Too movement happened, I absolutely had a reflection moment to go. Did I have an organization that oversaw that, you know, because in my organization, uh, you know, this shit was, you know, not even, oh, we're turning a blind eye. Most of my restaurants were run by women anyway. I don't, by not, because they were women, just because they were great at their job. So I don't know if that helped. I certainly had a zero tolerance of it. I was, you know once gaffed for throwing a famous restaurant tour out of my restaurant mm-hmm. for slapping one of the waitresses on the ass like really hard and she was incredibly upset and i yeah. fucking threw him out of the restaurant and my manager wouldn't let me come out of the kitchen to do it and then i got one of my clients said i was overreacting and i was like what and then i felt guilty about throwing yeah. this guy out and embarrassing him in front of a bunch of people but i thought he was a dickhead anyway and he still is but um, and he'll know who he is if he's listening to this show <laughs> um, but the point was was to me it just made sense right i grew up in a very feminine Home, right? So, in that, how did you deal with that shit? Like the Mario Batali stuff's pretty fucking dark, right? Yeah. And how did you deal with that? Are you at a at a higher level? Like at a lower level, you're in charge of those people. Did you fire right. them? Did you counsel them? You know? And then a higher level when it happens to you, how do you how do you shrug that off and not put yourself in a situation? Well,
1: there's, I mean, look, there's how. Every woman deals with it is very unique to their position and where they yep. are in their career. For me, for the longest time, I put my head down and I worked and I didn't realize that I was the anomaly um, in terms of like being a woman and growing until people started pointing it out to me. Right. And it came up, it very slowly started to, I started to open my eyes to it because it was one of these moments where it's like, well, how have you grown as a woman? And I just remember being like, I don't I don't understand the question. Yeah, Like, how have you progressed as a woman? That was like a very common question when I was at the standard yep. where, you know, women that I would mentor or managers that were up and coming would ask me these questions. And in terms of counseling people that worked for me, yes, there was a zero tolerance policy sure. for, um, for any of that behavior. But I think that when it comes to people that are above um, line level employees, it becomes a little bit more challenging because of the lack of education. Again, sure. if I grew up, thinking that well this is just normal and the people above me um, whether they're founders owners executives whoever whatever the title is they're the ones who are creating that environment right so you know of course like for me to bring or for anyone to bring something like that during that time to their attention it would have fallen on deaf ears
0: interesting isn't it because it's one of those things where if you if you're in hospitality you know that if people are working and they're not the only hardest working industry, cause hospitality people, we tend to have this thing about where the hardest working of people course. in the world. And I'm like, well, there are 20, not yeah. now, but you know, you, we you can see office blocks yeah, up hill both ways, but, but in hot, in restaurants, uh, um, you know, you are doing a lot of hours. It is brutally difficult, particularly if you're in, in front-facing or back-facing, you know, um, the kitchen or you're in front-facing the clients because it's just, I always tell chefs when they're, you know, yelling at the the servers, certainly they get fired pretty quickly with me, but I've been known to raise my voice and reflected on times where I've said to myself, shit, I really didn't need to lose my temper and i'm actually interviewing a great michelin star chef a friend of mine who actually was re- reflecting on his his whole reputation in australia was re- was reputable for being a worse than gordon ramsay but at the same Ooh. time he was an incredible chef and he now just regrets all of that and 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 what he's done and so forth so reflection one thing but the question i ask is what's changed now because i uh you know recently thought isn't it going to be a nightmare and where i'm going with this long long question is isn't it going to be a real nightmare now for people to date in any industry (laughs) because in all restaurants that i've had you always know you know jenny the the server is with johnny the cook and Mm -hmm. they hook up why because they all work and whilst everybody's in bed at 10 and 11 o'clock your shift finishes 11, 12, and you're winding down. No one goes home at 5 and goes to sleep. So hospitality people don't. They end up in a bar. They're both tired. They don't see anybody, and then they hook up and they do whatever. But now there's a, there's a real danger here now where it's not even about hooking up. Some relationships are formed. Marriages have been formed in my restaurants where people have mm-hmm. met, and they've married, and they've got kids, and they're happy. But now it's like you're in no man's land in regards to what danger zone, if you're a supervisor particularly, and you date a cook and that thing's not made official, one of you has to possibly leave or sure, get fired. Yeah. What, what's changed now? Like, what's it like, because we're going to talk about what you're doing now. What's yeah. it like, because you have a coaching business, which we'll get into, and you're running a, a big establishment now. What's it What's it really like now for people? Like, you find out, like, I'm a line cook, and there's a supervisor, say, on the floor, and we're dating. What happens?
1: I think that organizations will... Um larger organizations and probably like mid-level organizations um certainly take the position that hr gets involved legal gets involved immediately right there's no at least from the people that i've spoken to there's very little well let's try to figure this out it's immediately coming through the lens of when we get sued it's not if we're going to get sued it's not well you know we're engaged to get married it's there's just a lot of companies are taking the position of they want to wash their hands of any sort of implication, whether it's between the two people or someone from the outside looking in, there's just so many layers to this and the challenge. And I think what's most frustrating is that we're, um, we're in a very litigative society right now Um, and we have been for quite some time. Um, And so you guys
0: love suing people. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and by you we guys still please have, clarify that I mean, comment I mean, Americans, you mean Americans, Americans thank you loves, I
0: mean I love America but I mean in Australia we have a dickhead policy and eventually right. if somebody goes hey I'm suing you because I, I some water fell on my coat right. as I was walking past your apartment right. at three o'clock the in the morning the judge just goes no you're an idiot but here right. you have to defend yourself
1: yes you do right. you're guilty until proven innocent and so I think the, the biggest challenge and I think what is most frustrating for some of the women that have um, that have actually dealt with and like I'm not here to to bring truth to any matter sure, or sure. To, to dispel anything. Do you need a lawyer? Or <laughs> do you know I know I just <laughs> yeah, did it right. You just
0: did it. Well, <laughs> oh, fuck it. Hang on, we're so gonna here's edit the this disclaimer. out. Disclaimer. <laughs> here's
1: here's the fine print. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that it becomes it becomes hard for those people to be taken seriously, right? Right. And so then it, there's like the people who are actually in love, who want nothing to do with the lawsuit, who are truly just in it, in this industry because they're passionate and they love their craft and they just happen to fall in love and you know there's like some statistic that says that whatever like 60% of marriages happen like at work or whatever it is um, I think that it puts the employer at a huge disadvantage because now that leads to like higher expenses because they do have to protect themselves sure. and then it leads to turnover because a change has to happen.
0: So, so don't you think now it's kind of like being gay in the military you know don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. This actually is creating 100%. a bigger barrier because now it's 100%. just going to make people lie about it because you're not totally. going to stop people doing that and yeah. you're not going to stop people you know, sleeping together or having affairs or Absolutely. having a relationship. So so let's get off and let's get on some fun stuff. Please. Um, please. So, <laughs> I can see your lawyers walking lawyer's in right, right now. There. So they're like, cut. <laughs> um, so you're now running, uh, your position is running the Williamsvale Hotel.
1: Yeah, the Williamsvale Hotel. Yeah.
0: Williamsvale Hotel. always put an S on it. I don't know why. <laughs>
1: Oh, Uh, I've never heard you do that before. I'm Australian. I like to just change things a little bit. You know, Um,
0: it's my dyslexia. Um, You're running the William Bay Hotel. You've got uh, a a group doing the F&B, the NoHo group, and you've Mm -hmm. got owners and so forth. I don't know much about what you do. Can you tell us a little about what you're doing there at the moment? Sure.
1: Um, You know, it started as a consulting opportunity for Mm -hmm. me. I transitioned out of hospitality um, right after I left Virgin and was consulting for some time. And you know, this, this group brought me on board to help them.
0: You were at Virgin Hotel prior to this, right? Yes. You opened the first Virgin Hotel in Chicago. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started consulting not out of a desire to build a, a consultancy, um, more out of a desire to just focus on things that I really loved. Yeah. Um, this project came along uh, right when I realized that I was done with the consulting space and I started building my executive coaching practice um, and, you know, came on board, worked with both, I currently still work with both ownership groups, and the task was to, to fix the business, yeah, and to, you know, to make it more profitable without sacrificing the brand, or, you know, some of the things that some of us creatives have known to come and love, um, but also balancing um, the culture, the profit, um, and the success of the business. So
0: you, you have to be not only incredibly operational savvy, as a COO almost, and- you also have to be innovative. Um, innovation is a big yeah. part of what you do. But the other side of it is that you have to be an incredibly good negotiator because you've essentially <laughs> got, you've got an owner, yeah. you've probably got a hotel management company, I guess, and then you've got an F&B management mm-hmm. company. So you've basically got three teams and they all have to play in unison. And you're in one way, you're almost the conductor, right?
1: Yes, um, that's actually a very good way of putting it, if you could please negotiate my deals moving <laughs> forward, that would but, be no, great. I don't want any more jobs. <laughs>
0: Enough work on as it is. Thank you very much.
1: Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, lots of negotiating, lots of um, translating of what the other party means. Yeah. Um, you know, typically hotel owners, developers, especially first time um, hotel owners don't understand the hospitality industry and don't understand um, some of the things that are on the PNL that are absolutely required yep. to move the brand forward. Yeah, like wages. <laughs> what do you mean
0: one person can't clean seventy rooms? Yeah, well, yeah. You know.
1: <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, and then you know, there's there's obviously the creatives. So yep. the, the man the restaurant management company NoHo, who yep. um, has put their blood, sweat, and tears into creating um, a brand and a company right. that um, you know now they've they've put their names to that needs to be protected and looked after.
0: So you did some things over COVID. Um, I'm going to ask you about COVID. We talked sure. a lot. You got COVID, and I did. Uh, you did, and you were really bad. And mm-hmm. I was real, really shocked because you're incredibly healthy. Yeah. Um, if anybody should have got it, it, should have been me at that period. Because <laughs> not better. I mean, maybe, maybe the virus came near me, looked at all the empty wine bottles, and just went. I don't think this is nothing happen. to see here. You he won't even notice. But you got really bad, and. Um, you were very sick and I was threatening to take you to the hospital I kept sending you food and Ubers which was fun which was amazing which which was fun I was also you can actually cook I can't believe it Yeah, yeah. and also my overcater anyway so you normally cook 20 (laughs) gallons of (laughs) minestrone when I just don't have dinner for one so I sent you some food and I sent Jason my business partner he Mm -hmm. was sick and you you finally got better but it was a long long five six weeks and you had a son so right now you went from running this enormous business you have a coaching business we'll talk about in a sec you had a newborn your mother's living with you. you got COVID. The hospitals are saturated with yeah. people. People are dying left, right and centre. It's scary. We're in that middle of March moment where it's just weird. And you're looking and you, you know, I think you said you've got like French doors uh, at your yeah. place and you basically had to be a plate glass away from your boy yeah. for six weeks. And thank, I guess in a way, thank God he was under one because he probably didn't understand why there was a plate glass window. Now yeah. we've been a little harder. What was that like?
1: Oh, it was awful. It was awful. It, um, you know, I think in hospitality, we go through periods where we give so much of ourselves uh, to the point where we burn ourselves out. and We're like, oh, you chalk things up to being tired or being stressed out um, because a lot of times you get to a certain level and you realize that it's cyclical and you'll yep. get your time back. Um, during COVID, it was probably one of the worst times in terms of like managing the business. I laid off over a hundred people. It was devastating. It was, you know, it was such an emotional time because no one knew what was happening. Um, And so, you know, when we decided to close the hotel, I got sick that following Monday. The moment we shut the doors down. And I
0: remember you getting sick because you were, like we were, we were furloughing tons of people and you were running through the hotel, you know, madly trying to save as many lives as you can, right? Essentially... Trying to keep as many people on the books as you could legally, sure. and, and by the landlords, and then so so I just want to wrap this in a, in a in a sort of a view for the audience, and so you get COVID, you're shutting down a hotel, you've got a newborn kid,
1: yeah,
0: and you just pre just pre that signed a new mortgage on, a, on an <laughs> yeah, apartment right. that you couldn't that's move right. into because Days it had to before. be renovated, and your timing right. couldn't have been worse, that. right? Yeah. and so as a human that has a coaching business, we're going to talk about that as well. What was, I mean, clearly with COVID, nothing was going through your mind other than I just want to get the fuck out of COVID out of me. But what did you take away from that time? Were you proud of the way you handled yourself? Like, and what did you use to pivot through that in regards to handling people? Because you were basically telling people they're not going to get paid. And at that point, for the listeners in New York, there was no. There was no plan to pay anyone. There was no stimulus checks. There was no unemployment plan. No no one in hospitality ever goes on unemployment because we're just like, ah, fuck it, we'll get a job. Nothing's open. You're sick. How did you get through that?
1: Um, You know, I think that in the moment, um, COVID really took a lot out of me. And it it was, you know, it was two weeks of pure hell. Once I got through um, closing the hotel, And finally realized and accepted that I had COVID, I knew the moment that I woke up on Monday, I was like, I have it. I fell asleep on a conference call with my owners.
0: I want to clarify that (laughs) for people that don't know you because you're incredibly fucking stubborn that you basically right. were telling you yourself that you didn't have COVID even though you had it because your typical yeah. hospitality going, ah, oh, it's just like a hangover. you totally. had plenty of these, I'll totally. be fine. It was like,
1: I'm tired. I closed a hotel down. It's been very emotional. It's taken yep. a lot out of me. Um, we closed the hotel on a Friday. Um, I went through the weekend. I actually went for a couple of runs outside of where I did. was like, oh,
0: why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a pair of leotards um, out I, in freezing yeah, exactly. cold,
1: anyway. Um, I went for a run Monday, I woke up. I was like, I think I might have it. And I remember I had a conference call with my ownership group. um, Fell asleep on the conference call. Um, And I was like, God, that can't be normal. And, you know, finally the next day I I started to distance myself from my son and my mom, um, which obviously was already too late, knowing what we know now. Sure. Um, Had a conference call with my doctor, a teleconference, um, whatever it's called. And I shared with him some of my symptoms. And he was like, yeah, you got it. I was like, are you sure? he was like you have a hundred and i think i had a 103 temperature at the time and then it just like progressively went up um and uh, you know it was it became very real but in in the moment it wasn't that real i was like yeah you know what i think i'll just be sick for like five or six days and then like six bounce back um and you know just it kept like getting worse and worse and worse to the point where you know one day i slept like 20 hours and i was like in and out of um consciousness um I think I may have passed out. I don't remember, honestly. Um, but I think what my takeaway from that experience, um, in all honesty, as anyone would tell you, yep. having gone through something like that is truly recognizing the importance of being present and um, not sweating the small stuff. Yeah. Right. And for me, the small stuff is really, it has to do with business. It has to do with a lot of the stuff that I do. Where now... You know, I've been meditating for a very long time, as you very well know. It's reinforced the concept of what meditation is all about. Right. And not to sound overly dramatic, but at one point I thought I was going to die. Yeah. And afterwards...
0: Because I remember remember talking to you and you know, your temperature didn't go down. Yeah. It went up to 103 or 105 or something really bad. I think
1: it was like, yeah, it yeah. was like and 105. And you're like, no, oh, I'm
0: fine. It's gone down to 103. Now it's like up to 104. And you were playing with half digits because you were just trying to think about yeah. being better. Yeah. And I was like, okay, we might need to get you to the hospital, which was the worst place to go. And and what we yeah. know now was the worst place to go. Exactly. Because, um, you know, so that was a pretty scary time. You say sweat the small stuff, but in, in the essence, you're a detail orientated person. Right. You're talking about the most important thing is that you're going to stay alive. Your your son's not going to get sick and your mother's not going to get sick, who happened to be living in the house as well.
1: Which they both were sick. Yeah. Um, And we didn't know that until after the fact. And I had um, him tested for antibodies. So he had Um, it? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) He's much stronger than I am. Yeah, wow. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but, you know, all kids, like, I don't think there's enough data around how kids... weather it yep. um, obviously like he was fine you chuck everything yep. up to he, he bangs
0: into a lot of stuff and seems to be fine so <laughs> yeah, I think maybe yeah. COVID just he went and went what is this I don't know <laughs> anyway what's for breakfast
1: <laughs> exactly so
0: you had a coach you have a coaching business I want to talk about this coaching business because I'd like to get some tools to understand you coach executive um, mm-hmm. players in the in the industry in any industry or just hospitality
1: um, you know recently I've started working with a couple of people outside of the industry yep. um, and it's it's great because it's nice to pull out of a hospitality industry yep. um one of the things about coaching is you know my goal is to help executives um creators um get out of their own way yep. and help them get clear on their goals because a lot of times as you very well know you don't have a sounding board you don't have somebody yeah. that is in your corner that can say hey you know what that's actually a blind spot for you
0: when you say get out of your own way because like this is really important for the people that want to understand when i say coaching it's almost a dirty word because so many people have sure. f- fucked it up because they don't have a real talent they have a real talent to coach but they don't. it's kind of like teachers that you know mm-hmm. wanted to be an engineer but teaches it instead of actually does it right and i feel like with coaching businesses it's not all people but there are a lot of phonies right and there are mm-hmm. a lot of people coaching and they can't fucking manage their own lives You actually, on the other hand, have done it all. So you're kind of of a young veteran in being able to talk with authority, right? So when you say get out of your own way, what do you mean by that?
1: Um, Look, I think that, I think there's a difference between um, making a point to make a point and following through on a true passion that if you don't do that thing, then, You won't be you. And sometimes what I find oftentimes is that business owners, um, particularly CEOs, even vice presidents, will do what they believe is expected of them instead of staying true to their craft and staying true to what they want to do. Um, sometimes and this is and here's what it looks like this is what it looks like to the outside is you know you'll have someone who externally looks very successful they might have a multi-million dollar business but internally they haven't seen their family they're constantly played with making the right business decision they're signing deals that aren't profitable that take up a lot of their time but they're making these decisions because they're like I have to do this because I have X amount of people counting on me and so finding that balance Um, before it's too late, and I can't tell you the amount of people that, you know, I've worked with that have privately shared with me, nobody knows this, but my company was almost bankrupt, Mm. or, like, here's, like, the underbelly of what I'm dealing with, and you sit there, and you're just, like, holy shit, like, you've been dealing with this on your own, and yeah, they have therapists, and yeah, they have, like, certain resources, Um, but I'd say, like, the difference between, and I don't know if we're going to go there, but the difference between therapy and coaching is that coaching is action-oriented. Gotcha. Right? So yeah, you actually, seems. so yeah, sure, you're going to feel good sometimes. Um, but because I've done a lot of this work, and even using the William Bale as an example, I've rebuilt that business from the ground up. Um, I have a little bit of credibility in terms of being able to say, a little bit, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've been in your shoes. Like sure, sure. I get it. So like that's bullshit. Yeah. But like let's focus on the real stuff. Yeah. And so just being able to like balance like calling people on their shit yep. um in order to get to a place where it's like here's what's different since I've worked with you. Right and that's like that's really the goal but
0: you know like there's the um incredible book tools of titans by tim Mm -hmm. ferris which i i you know thank god he didn't make me read the 780 fucking pages but he actually had a ledger that said you go to your whatever you prefer and find out how they do it and i actually have read half the book and i think you know it it is it, it can be a bit tedious but what i did like about it is how he found some some but not Everybody wants to say what are the similarities between CEOs? What's your gift? What's the morning routine? Yeah, I mean, like I was listening to Mark Cuban the other day, right? And he they were talking and he was talking about his morning. And, you know, everybody wants to hear, he gets up at four, he trains by five. You know, it's like Mark Wahlberg. I train and I play seven rounds of golf and I fucking, you know, box and and that's just by five. And And I sleep two
1: hours a night and I'm great. And
0: I'm sick two hours (laughs) a night and I'm not depressed and I want to kill myself, you know, like but it's it's when you see somebody like um Mark Cuban he was talking about he goes i get out of bed at like 6:37 he goes i see my kids he goes i've got these cookies that are really low calories so i can eat a lot of them <laughs> i <just laughs> literally said that he literally said that. that i was like he must own the cookie company and he's like i drive <laughs> right. my kids to school i have some coffee and he goes, and a lot of them what's really uh-huh. interesting some of the, you know this idea of don't get up and look at your emails and i'm like You've worked for Branson. We know the Bransons work well. Uh, he sits there and it says he gets up in the morning, grabs his iPad and sits in bed and goes through his emails. Yeah. Mark Cuban does the same thing. And they're not nutty and they're incredibly successful. They seem like they're incredibly successful human beings from what we see. Um, and, and, and so have you found any thread that's consistent through the people you coach?
1: Yeah. What is it? Don't force them to do what everybody else does. Right. They have to do their own thing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm literally doing this right now with um, a couple of people because I see a lot of themes in coaching and, uh, you know, I have um, one entrepreneur who's like, OK, should I meditate, journal and then like do this? I'm like, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Like there there is no one size fits all formula for everyone. And so what I've done with myself and what I've done with other people is I've tried experiments. Yeah. And here's the thing, like what works right now might not work six months from now. Yeah and what worked, you know, 2 years ago might never work again. Yeah. And so there are like I also think that, you know, when it comes to meditation mm. because it's a hot topic right now, sure. there are different forms of meditation. Yeah, For some I mean, it's, people it's, it's drinking coffee and reading.
0: Agreed. Uh, you know, it's a really interesting subject because I I graduated with transcendental meditation and then yeah. I did and and you know from Bali we do all kinds of when I was living in Bali mm-hmm. we do all kinds of meditation. But what's funny is, you know, and I, and I realize what doesn't work. Like, don't lie down after you've woken up in the lounge room on the rug and meditate because you'll find yourself waking up about an hour later. <laughs> so I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, uh, maybe I didn't need that. Maybe I, maybe I was just exhausted. But, exactly. but I also realized, you know, by experimenting and finding that formula that slowly, that it never it never stops changing. That sure. you, you know, like a statue, you're always just trying to perfect it with even transcendental I realized that that wasn't for me even mm. though I spent three years doing mm. it and I realized the first six months it opens a can of worms up for your dream cycle sure. which is incredible which is apparently really normal and I remember once I was having therapy and I was talking to her about it and I said yeah but I'm doing all these things and she goes and I was waiting for her to give me this like really you know Harvard educated and she goes you know so you're struggling with uh, transcendental yeah and I, go, I just don't know what to mm. do and she goes why don't you just not do it anymore <laughs> I was like, You're "I have like a choice." Genius. Wait, I have a choice, right? And she said to me that really interesting in a, in a session that I had. She said to me, "You're very normal in all the people I deal with. High functioning people that are ambitious she called you normal." You, yeah, well, she said, Ish. "In the people like you," um, and she said, "High functioning individuals, or I think you are, with that sometimes, and I'm putting myself in in a, in a different level of my personal life. You, once your personal life switches on, you get out of work." Yeah. You are dysfunctional, and she said that a lot about high functioning CEOs, particularly as I'd been one before. And and you know, mm-hmm. I was traveling the globe and three weeks a month in the air and blah blah blah. And I remember once I had a partner that said to me, "I'm not one of your chefs." In an argument, and I was like, "Oh, you can't, you can't actually, you can't, you can't say, hey, like that was pretty unprofessional of what you did last night. You can't counsel your partner like a chef, right. but you realize that." where I'm going with your coaching business you realize that hospitality is firefighting and and when you're yeah. really good at it it's, it's preventative firefighting and but you're always solving problems right and then you have to pivot your brain to going how do I prevent this and have solutions and whatever and ten hospitality people tend to do that with relationships it's like military strategists mm-hmm. are always terrible in relationships because they're academics when they're mm-hmm. doing strategy, yeah. and then when they get home, the wife doesn't want you to map out a strategy <laughs> <Exactly>. physically. <laughs> you know, so so you know, is, hosp- is hospitality unique in this, or is it just generally with high-functioning people that want to do really well in their career that becomes their craft and their passion? What's it, their private lives are kind of a little bit in shadows, or not?
1: Um, I, you know, it's. I think that it's a hard, it's a tough question to answer because. Mm. Everyone is on is on their own path, right which right. like we, we've spoken about before. but I think that what I, what I find a lot of times in, in speaking with people, um, there's a balance to it, yeah. right? But they only find the balance until like something has gone terribly wrong. Right. And so you know if you're usually like work is the driver, Sure. and so when there's challenges at work sometimes your personal life suffers right um, and it, what is very hard for me to come to terms with is this sort of um, disbelief or I should say um, surprise when things are in balance and they can't have it all
0: is that what is that one of the is that one of the most needy things out of people you coach is that what they're well, looking here's, for look
1: here's the thing the firefighter mentality that you mentioned mm-hmm. um that comes from this like deep need and realization that okay like this is what i do this is what i do but what i find with people is the less that they participate in that the fires sometimes like don't really need their attention sure Right? Like they, you know, there's one CEO that I've worked with in the past that I'm I'm thinking about where he would insert himself regularly into solving these problems. And I worked with his team as well. And I just remember thinking, and this is like the beauty of it, like great CEOs will solicit information from their team because they know they're not going to get a performance review. Their performance review is turnover. If... They take a second and say, "Hang on a second, I just lost three of my direct reports. I wonder, I wonder why." Yeah. And it's usually because of them and how they manage, or like their lack, of, their micromanaging, whatever it is. But the firefighter, the pro- the problem solving like thing that you're referring to, which a lot of us have, sometimes it has to be checked. And if you don't yeah, check it yourself, yeah. like right, like you're gonna suffer. Other parts of your life are gonna suffer because you can't be everything to everyone.
0: Well, so isn't it like a high wire act in a way to? Great CEOs that I've worked with um, always have one thing that I like is they know when to micro and know when yeah. to macro and they know when to go, yep. I might need to just, you know, yep. it's kind of like those nutty CEOs where they're talented in a certain area and, and And I was reading one of an Australian CEO that failed recently in a company and he was so OCD mm-hmm. about the way the office looked and people leaving pens and drinks on his desk and I thought is he might need more than therapy. And he failed at that because what he didn't translate was what he wanted. He actually just kept picking through those moments. Do you think some of the best CEOs are the ones that can micromanage something and then go, okay, I'm gonna leave that now, you guys have got this, and they move away, like a bit of both, as opposed to just helicopter managing everything?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I actually, I use that um, phrase quite often, and I think any leader, any CEO needs to understand when to zoom in and when to zoom out. Mm-hmm. Because if you're continually looking at the micro, then as the leader and as the CEO, how can you possibly focus on the macro as well? We all know there's no such thing as my, my, um, multitasking. Sure. So why would you think that you're, you're special enough to be able to do both?
0: So say people like Elon Musk, for example, mm-hmm. listening to him say something funny in this interview a little while ago, and he was like, they were asking about media and he said, people think I must spend all my time doing media stuff. And he right. goes, I kind of don't. He yeah. goes, "I spend all my time engineering." He goes, "That's what this I'm focused craft. on." Yeah. And I think that, you know, there are elements of, you know, armchair critics are everywhere and unless you've created. So, with CEOs right now, like you're coaching right now, mm-hmm. what's the number one priority for CEOs coming to you right now because we're in the middle of COVID, we're recording this, you know, now March, um, what is the priority for them?
1: Rebuilding their business.
0: Yeah. And what is that what 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 kind of advice are you giving them?
1: Um, getting clear on what their what their vision is.. Yep. And you know it all it comes back to how we started this conversation. and it's not, you know, getting very clear on ultimately where they want to take their company, where they want to take their lives, because you can't really separate the two. Right. If you want to, and just to make up an example, if you want to travel the world and spend time with your family and you want to build, a 10 million dollar company and you're at zero it's like those two can't coexist so let's figure out like what you really want what's really important to you why it's important to you and then go from there and you know honestly like there's no right or wrong answer and just because you say something today doesn't mean that it can't change a year from now it's your life you can change your mind
0: so for somebody that's had it's good advice actually somebody's had three crises under their belt for the hospitality sector mm-hmm. What's your, do you have, a? neither of us have crystal balls, but do you have some kind of moment in a crystal ball moment that may see the future over the next two years? Do you think it's going to be like the Spanish flu where we had the roaring twenties yeah. straight after everybody started taking the Spanish flu series? Do you, or, or do you think it's going to be a slow growth period or a boom or bust?
1: I, you know, I'm, I'm hopelessly optimistic. Um, so I think that we're going to have, I think we're going to have a boom. Um, I think the true artists in this industry, are, I hope, are going to be the ones who come out on top. On top, yeah. there's a couple of restaurants that I live in the West Village now. So there's a couple of restaurateurs and restaurants that I know that have like weathered the storm, and you can tell they're in it. Yeah. They're not these chefs that are, you know, operating from. Um, Someplace overseas or from the Hamptons, they are in it to win it and they're fighting the fight. And I guarantee you, they're going to come out ahead.
0: You were talking about the West Village about some, you know, some of the players that in, yeah. in restaurant world that have basically been, you know, running through the mud and, and, you know, making sure that they understand that they, they've got a future. Do you think it's like it been an interesting time? I've been observing what we used to see as successful and very famous restaurateurs mm-hmm. and no one deserves to go broke. And I've, I've, I yeah. know what that feeling can be like. Sure. But it's been an unraveling of businesses that you thought were successful that they technically weren't. And, yeah. I, and I wonder, it was kind of interesting during the COVID period and now is that the industries that have the wealth to build things out and start new groups again are sitting there with their hands in their pockets. And the ones that don't have the money are the ones that seem to be running back in a gunfire and saying, fuck it, we're going to open another restaurant. We're going to, yeah. we'll, we'll sell everything we believe in the industry. Whereas private equity, I know there is an aggressive expansion. So like for somebody like House, for example, which I'm part of, is one of the few companies out there that is just aggressively expanding mm-hmm. and, and in a good way and, and, and in, a, in a healthy and and, in, and an inclusive way and, 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 you know, thorough. And, and I say that biasly because I'm watching it. Um, but I've noticed that a lot of the private equity people are still sitting there going, well, we're not quite sure when things are going to come back this year. We're going to wait till next year. Are you seeing that?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, you touched on something um, just a few minutes ago about the people that are running into the fire with yep. nothing to their name, which I, I know that you're one of those people as yep. well, um, because it's your passion. It's your craft. You can't, you can't not believe in it. So I do think that um, there's some hesitation from some parts of the market. I, I'll tell you specifically in hotels. Sure. Um, hotel owners and developers are starting to really rethink what that new model looks like. The days of the hey, here's four percent to come in and yeah. you know manage this, you know, it felt like those days were starting were already numbered. Um, they're at an advantage now. Yeah. Right. So like you look at how hard it is to get into this industry. And if you want to open a restaurant, you still need a significant amount of of startup capital. Yeah, it's kind of interesting,
0: right? Because it's funny with hospitality people where either we're mentally disabled and we, in, in no offense to somebody that is, but more in the brain that we just can't see anything else but staying in the industry. Right. And then... You know, I, I remember I was listening to De Niro and who's probably what, 80 mm. movies in, and you know, none of us have his kind of money, but we wish we did. And he, and somebody said to him, so have you ever thought about doing anything else? And he goes, you know, are you still happy making movies? And he just said, well, I don't know how to do anything else. And yeah. he goes, and what else am I gonna do? And I actually right. realized that hospitality people are like that. We're like, our sector is so broad. So in film, we can be a director, or you can be sure. a producer or whatever. But even in hospitality, uh, you know, I, I literally interviewed somebody the other day for a, for an F&B director's role, and that person was a chef, a COO, a CEO, mm-hmm. a business partner. They were kind of like the orchestra; they, they played every instrument,
1: of course, and, and yeah. still
0: loved it through the brutal, you know, the brutal COVID period. So, is that how you see the industry?
1: I do. I and it, it's always been that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, so the people that have those skills. Um, I know that at any given time in my current role, I am either a project manager, a construction manager, um, or a control, a financial controller, or COO. But I've always been that way. Yeah. Just using myself as an example, early on in my career, I had to understand the financials. I had to understand um, how to ensure quality. I had to understand lighting. I had to understand, you know, how to fix something to give someone direction. Um, and this was before you could YouTube everything. Yeah. And so. You know, that skill set and the need for it is only going to be amplified. Um, but I do think that, you know, one of the things that I'm personally seeing in the industry right now is that it's hard to find talent.
0: It is. I think it's, it's so really, hard to find talent. Really interesting. It really is. And I think that's where I think there's going to be a massive boom, definitely yeah. recruiting agencies. For Consulting sure. seems to be a big play because a lot of people have laid people off and they're mm-hmm. still a little unsure about bringing people aboard. But it's interesting the modeling that's changed for restaurants because nobody that I know that has a great restaurant wants anything to do with takeout and never did, but they did it. And um, ironically, it was the only time I could ever get a Gramercy Tavern fucking burger was when I got (laughs) it on takeout because I could never get a table in the place, (laughs) right? And and by the time it came, it wasn't anywhere near as good. And I know they know that. And I'm the other half of town and I did it anyway because I was trying to have a moment while everybody was locked out of their restaurant. I wonder... You know, Shep Gordon brought this up on the show mm-hmm. one day when he talked about, you know, six weeks in LA, lockdown. He was having a baby, and there he gets that sad takeaway bag in the same. box with show, no by the way. nothing. Yeah, mm-hmm. he is, he is, he's an, an incredible talent, that he saw that. And actually, you know, um, we're doing that. Like, we've got mm-hmm. a, a place we're going to be launching soon, and, and the takeout model, there's a, there's a date night pack, and it's literally a dinner pack with, a, you know, a beautiful... Uh, County bottle candle, a gingham tablecloth, and a silk rose. I love it. And we call it the we're calling it the date night sixty nine only because it's oh, sixty nine dollars. Okay. But guess so I get you mind out of the gutter. But, <laughs> I... <laughs> but but we're thinking of new ways now. You ask me three four years ago I opened or three years ago I opened a restaurant in Australia. We won best new restaurant, mm-hmm. best restaurant. Ask me then, would I be even considering putting any kind of food in a bag and sending it ten miles down the road on a and
1: bike? And being
0: proud of it. And, and on a bike and being <laughs> proud of it. I'm pretty proud of my Chianti bottle. So, but but the the point is, even I'm figuring out how to pivot and understand that. No wonder if when when things turn around, sure, we're all tired of eating takeout, uh, and some people can't even afford that. Um, I wonder if it's going to change the landscape of how food's delivered. I think it's already happening in the tech world. Yeah. People are using ghost kitchens and creating brands sure. with no street frontage. And basically, I think that's incredibly smart. If you had stock money, I'm going, to, and I'm going to ask two more questions, but if you had money to put in stock in hospitality or some money towards something, what industry part in in, in, in the hospitality industry, what sector would you put money on? Hotels. Right. Because of because of the lack of travel and everybody's going to want to leisure up. Yep. And last question, uh, 20 year old self, what would you tell yourself right now as advice?
1: Oh man, so much. Just one piece of advice. Um, I would tell myself to be true to myself and to to not, um, be unapologetic.
0: Yeah. Not, not drink too much either or? Eh. Eh. (laughs) Good memories. Fantastic having you on the show. Thank you. This was great. All right, folks, that's it for today's show. If you love what we do, we'd appreciate if you follow, share, and like us. We love our listeners. We love you. The Raw Hospitality Show, Season 2.